We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast, Week 5 Recap Edition. Uh, hell of a week in the NFL. Once again, continuing the streak of crazy, uh, entirely improbable, but also highly entertaining primetime games. Uh, a few upsets that that very few people saw coming. A few stomps that maybe everybody saw coming, but... Highly, highly entertaining week in the NFL. Once again, we're going to be breaking down uh, everything that we saw, everything that we loved, some things that maybe we didn't love so much, and of course, uh, some rather big, earth-shattering news across the league as well that that broke yesterday or a couple days before that. Um, but before we get into all that, EJ, buddy, how you doing, and what are you drinking? I'm good. It's apparently the Double Hoodie Podcast. I don't know that we've ever had the double hoodie edition of bootleg, but uh, it's opening night for the NHL and the Seattle Kraken play their first game tonight in Las Vegas. So wearing the hoodie for that in terms of what I'm drinking after all the tumult and uh, unexpected happenings of the week, I wanted something solid. I wanted something dependable. I wanted something reliable and familiar. So I pulled out the blue ribbon beer, Pat's blue ribbon. PBR, always know you, how about it? Always know what you're going to get when you when you pull out a PBR. So uh, lots of things we didn't know what we were going to get this week in the NFL. I, I kind of went the opposite, bucked the trend there and picked something familiar. But just an incredible week in the NFL. And it feels like somebody passed a rule while we weren't looking that no primetime games in 2021 can be boring, no matter how <laughs> lopsided they start to look at one point, which we'll talk about the game that was on last night. Uh yeah, it just uh, it seems like they're all going to come down to the wire. And it has indeed been a record number of games that have either gone to overtime or come down to, you know, being one score games within the last four or five minutes. And it just feels like any any game you tune into has the potential to be a barn burner. And in terms of entertainment value right now, the NFL is just unmatched. I put out a tweet last night that basketball and baseball are just like, fine, you win. <laughs> like, we can't compete with that. The NFL was strongly number one and has been in viewership numbers anyways. But putting out this kind of product where they just haven't really had a stinker in primetime yet. In fact, they've had a bunch of overtime finishes. It's just an unbeatable combination for fans who, who love the NFL. Especially Monday night. It feels like the Monday schedule this year has just been insane. Like, not even like, you know, 
top tier teams on top tier teams, but even the Colts who were one and three going into this game, we're going to talk about that game a little bit later, you know, pulling out all the stops and, and playing a nail biter against a, a top tier team like the Ravens. Like these are matchups that I feel like shouldn't be as good as they are, but they, they turn out to be phenomenal games. And uh, the, the Colts, by the way, fought like hell, all credit to them. They, they really, uh, it's been an unfortunate start for them, but again, we'll, We'll break down that game in full a little bit later in the show. Um, before we get to our first piece of news, uh, I do want to thank everybody that signed up for the bootleg Patreon that we just launched last week. Uh, we've got a few people that have donated support of the channel, kind of help us do what we do. Uh, I've got the Hall of Famers on the ticker down below. They are, uh, I guess you can call them our, our new executive producers you know, at that $50 a month tier, which I didn't think that anybody was even going to do that. And then it took like 24 hours and we had two people do that. So just everybody who's donated, uh, on Patreon supported the show could not thank you guys enough. And, um, remember you also get some benefits. If you do sign up as a patron, you get merch discounts, uh, for all patrons. If you wanted to buy something like say the bootleg hoodie, uh, you're going to have private Q and A's with us. We'll probably end up doing like some watch parties for games and stuff with you guys. Um, obviously if you're a hall of famer, you get your name on your ticker. So there, there's a, there's a lot of benefits that go into being a patron for bootleg. And, uh, I could not be more excited to, uh, to do some of these patron only activities, uh, coming up here in the future. Yeah. Thanks to everybody. The support's been great. It's really affirming to us, even folks that aren't patrons, such great support, listenership, comments, interaction on Twitter, but for folks to lay it down within the first week and say, I believe enough that I'm going to drop some money a month so that you guys can make more of this content that I really love is is really affirming. So huge thanks out to those folks. Really looking forward to all the events. I think they're going to be fantastic. But there's some big news we need to talk about that's a little bit less pleasant. So we should get into that. Yeah, uh, this is actually a, we were going to record on Monday night, but we decided to wait and record this on Tuesday because we wanted to make sure that we had all the information possible before we talked about this, and that is uh, John Gruden resigning as head coach of the Raiders due to, uh, God, I don't even know where to start here, uh, racist, misogynistic, sexist, anti-neuroscientist emails, you know, sharing topless photos of Washington cheerleader, like, you go down the list, there was everything here. Like, he was an equal opportunity offender. Um, and there was no doubt about it. Like, he he had to go. Like, he could not walk into that locker room and realistically command a room full of other men. Um, it was just bad. And so I was not surprised that he resigned and or was going to be fired. I definitely didn't think it was going to happen, like, two hours after the story broke. But... You know, is Mark Davis went right to the facility, found John, and it was over right then and there. So credit to the Raiders for at least internally handling this as quick as possible. Um, it, it all kind of started, I think it was Saturday, when the first emails about uh, Demora Smith, former NFLPA president, leaked. And that, that was bad enough. There was enough people calling for his job even just with that. But then when everything else came on top of that, it became very clear that this is not a person who should be leading an NFL franchise, especially, especially when that franchise has the first openly gay NFL player 
to you know make a roster and appear in regular season games. And Carl Nassib is just a damn good football player, period. Um, but you know the Raiders have you know really defined themselves by inclusion and diversity and, and everything like that. And to have uh, a head coach who had private thoughts in the antithesis of everything about about that stance, it it just you couldn't take it seriously anymore if you were a member of that organization. So uh, made total sense to me that he's gone. And uh, I think, I, well, I, I, I don't think I know this. There were 650,000 emails recovered from the investigation into Washington that led to this leak of John Gruden's communications. If that was the only one <laughs> that that was worthy of this kind of firestorm, I would be stunned. There's other stuff. I guarantee you there's other stuff. I only hope that we get to find out what that is. Because out of 650,000 emails, if there's only one guy in the power structure of the NFL that harbored these thoughts, that's just not realistic. That's not true, right? We already know that because he felt comfortable enough sending these emails with the horrible crap that was in them to other people. He was sending these to a club president, right? Club president is right below owner in the NFL and is sort of the de facto power structure in, in many clubs. The owner is hands off in a lot of clubs. Um, not so much in other clubs. President is the number two in an NFL organization. He was sending that stuff and it was being accepted, right? And, you could say, EJ, how do you know it was being accepted? Because we didn't hear about it 10 or 11 years ago. He didn't get called on the carpet publicly for saying, hey, using language that I don't think is acceptable. These thoughts don't have a place in a diverse workplace, which we all work in. Like, let's be really honest. Uh, I don't understand how a, it wasn't a bigger deal on Saturday. It was a big deal. There were a lot of people that were upset about it. But people say, oh, no, he could have recovered from that. Or, really? Really? You're going to walk into a predominantly African-American locker room after making racist trope characterizations of Tamora Smith and saying, oh, God, I, you know, I just meant that about him, not you guys. You guys are my guy. I mean, what are you going to do there? It just undercuts all yeah. your credibility. And somebody dropped in my mentions today and said, you know, just not me, but devil's advocate. What about people that say... These were private thoughts in a private email, and he shouldn't be fired for that. Well, that's crap. They're not private thoughts. He made them public. He sent them to, you know, an NFL club president and others. It was They weren't single recipient emails. He, You can have any thoughts you want, as horrible as they may be. That's your right as a person. The right you don't retain is the freedom from consequences when you make those thoughts public. You make horrible crap public, you get to take the firestorm, right? You get to take what people think is reasonable after you say, this is how I feel about other people. You can feel that way if you want. I personally think that's a very ignorant way to operate. But you are not free from consequences. The people saying, oh, he shouldn't have been fired. Well, A, he wasn't fired. He resigned out of shame. I assume, or just because his situation was no longer tenable, right? He couldn't do his job anymore. That's why he resigned. Nobody fired him or forced him out. 
be sure they would have if he hadn't taken that, you know, that opportunity on his own. But for people that say that kind of thing, oh, they're private thoughts and private emails. Well, they they might have been private thoughts before he made them public, but they're public emails, right? They went out to a wide group of people. So he gets to deal with his thoughts being put out there and everybody else's reaction to them. And, uh, you know, I, I put this out on Twitter, but I want to reiterate it here as well. I, I've, I'm hearing a bunch of people say, well, everybody's said bad things in emails before. You know, let's go through your emails and, and see if you're so pure, which you're welcome to because I've never said anything like that. I've I've never, you know, used racist tropes about the size of a black person's lips. I've never talked about how it's a shame that women are becoming referees. I've never, uh, you know, decried the Rams for a conspiracy theory about the league forcing them to draft Michael Sam, which was not true, by the way. Quick aside, that conspiracy theory is that the, the league promised that they would not give the Rams hard knocks or they wouldn't force them to be on hard knocks in exchange for drafting Michael Sam. Well, if that was true, why did the Rams willingly go on hard knocks twice in the next five years after that and do all or nothing? Like, it, it's fucking bullshit and it's stupid. So John Gruden bought into that and for some reason had had it out for the Rams for drafting, and these are his words, queers. I've never sent any of that shit in my emails. So yeah, go ahead, look through them. Like anybody that says, well, you're not so pure. I'm sure you have bad stuff in your emails. That to me is somebody who has a worldview where they have to convince themselves that everybody else is just as awful as them in order to feel like they're normal. And newsflash, no. The fact that John Gruden resigned two hours after this story broke, the fact that there's mass outrage about it shows that, no, not everybody has emails like this from 10 years ago. Maybe John's the wrong one. Maybe John is the exception. Like, it's it just bothers me that people just assume that everybody has these kind of communications. Like, no, not everybody's racist. Not everybody's misogynist. Like, not everybody uh, is anti-LGBT. John was. That's why John's facing consequences. So, you know, miss me with that shit. Like, it's it's a stupid argument, and anybody that makes it is making it uh, in poor faith. Yeah, the other one that I dislike that's along the same lines is, well, it's from 10 years ago. John Gruden was a grown-ass man 10 years ago. He was like 48. Yeah. Like, John <laughs> Gruden ridiculous. was well old enough to form his own opinions and stand up for what he says as his. And so the idea that he needs some kind of shield, um, it just doesn't hold any water. And Ryan Clark said something I thought was really interesting. He said, imagine the privilege to be able to say things like that and then say, that's ah, not really what I meant. He was talking about the comments on Saturday, right? which John Gruden came out with the very typical sort of uh, old white guy denial that we're, we see all the time, which is like, oh, no, I have, you know, I have black friends, right? Oh, God, here we go, right? Ryan Clark said, imagine being able to say that, issue that weak apology. I'm paraphrasing. This is not a quote. And then be able to say, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. That, oh, buddy, that amount of privilege is staggering to say something wildly offensive to 
a large group of people, again, you, you said it, he firebombed with equal opportunity. He, he leveled criticism against a wide variety of groups, to say the least. Including <laughs> other straight white men, by the way. Totally. So again, he just hates everybody equally. Yeah, but imagine being able to say, I said this terribly offensive stuff, I didn't really mean it, and that's it, conversation over. Like, the expectation that that would be true in some way, that you would be afforded that opportunity of peace and quiet after doing that. Like, that just reeks of an amount of privilege and and sort of detachment from the real world that is staggering. Like, it is really, really significant. Yeah, so it's just, it's a, it's a terrible situation in general. Um, I think... The Raiders handled it the only way they could. Credit to them. And, like, I have nothing against the Raiders here because these emails largely happened before he even worked for them. Um, You know, they went up to 2018. I can't remember what year Gruden's first year was coaching back with the Raiders. It was either 2018, 2019. I can't remember. Um, But, you know, the, the bulk of them took place before that. So, again, the Raiders are not really culpable for this um they handled it the best way i thought they could which was immediately going to john and saying look either you do it or we do um we'll see how the team recovers we'll see how the team rallies around the interim head coach who uh believe was their special teams coach that they just elevated like right after um it's it's a very hard situation i i don't know like just on the football side of this i don't know how the team's going to respond um, they have a game, let's see, it's not their bye week. I don't, uh, yeah, they have a game at Denver this week. So we'll, we'll see how the team responds. Again, this is a very unusual week for, uh, for a, a bunch of players to have to deal with. Um, with that all being said, why don't we get to three up number one? These are the three games or teams, uh, or players that, that we really just loved watching last week. And, uh, we'll start off with that incredible I mean just incredible uh, Browns and Chargers game um, it it actually was kind of a slow burn I'll almost say because it, it it seemed kind of a back and forth um, you know not necessarily like a score of Palooza in the first half and then you know there's a couple like busted plays here and there like Nick Chubb had some really big runs there was a, a busted coverage on like a third and ten for a huge Mike Williams touchdown that I think the Chargers retook the lead on. And, and I remember watching that one. I'll, I'll throw the all 22 up on that, uh, where it's like they were playing some kind of variation of quarters, I think. And then the safety just, <laughs> I when I say I think, it's because I'm not 100% sure because the safety yeah. messed up so bad that I, I can't quite make out what they were supposed to be in. I think it was quarters. And you, you saw the corner like literally looking back at him uh, at the end of the play, like, buddy, what the hell? You're supposed to bracket Williams inside with me because he was playing super outside and low shoulder, and then Williams just went to the post and there was nobody there. So just a complete bust on coverage, and that was one of the bigger plays of the first half. And then we get to the second half, and then it's just big play, big play, big play, big play. And, I mean, it went off. You had the Njoku touchdown um, for like 70 yards or something like that on a catch and run. You had another busted coverage uh, to Mike Williams where, again, the safeties got completely discombobulated about who was picking up who. And um, 
and then you had more Nick Chubb runs. You had Kareem Hunt making plays. Like it, it was insane. Like defense just went completely out the window in the second half, uh, and it ended up being um, what was the final score here? Forty-seven, forty-two. And these are two like good defenses, and they both gave up forty burgers just because of how insane this game was. But thoroughly entertaining. I imagine that we might get a rematch of this in the playoffs, which I can't wait for. But uh, overall, what was your what was your uh, main takeaway from Browns Chargers? Well, it was one of our ones to watch, and and so it's I, I posted on Twitter. Well, I guess it kind of lived up to that uh, and more. If I had told you that the final score of this game was Los Angeles twenty six and Cleveland fifteen, you would have been like, well. You know, you might have said something like, I expected that to be closer, like L.A. almost doubled them up. Yeah, that's the score from the fourth quarter. Fuck. (laughs) I didn't even know that. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, like if I told you that the final was like 15, you would have, oh, what happened to the Browns? They only scored, you know, basically two touchdowns. Like, what's the deal there? You know, the Rams scored, or sorry, the the Chargers scored about 30. Like, okay, you would have, that's the score from the fourth quarter. Like a twenty-six point fourth quarter is there's I a last lot. Time I saw that there's a lot of teams that are scoring less than twenty-six points per game. In fact, most teams in the league are scoring less than that per game. So it just speaks to again. You said slow burn. It was kind of up and down through you know, and it wasn't like a big hill and a mini comeback and a big hill and mini comeback. It was, it was back and forth. The score was close. And then second half, forget it. Like gloves are off. Defense is falling down. Like we're just going to go for it. We're just going to run it up. Right. Like just throw the, <laughs> throw the lit candle in the fireworks box and walk off. And that's what it felt like. It was just, you know, every time you checked in throughout the fourth quarter, <laughs> It changed hands. They scored again. What? Are, what is happening? We saw an update two minutes ago, and the score was you know fourteen points less. Like what is going on out there? And you just sort of knew that it was it was going to be one of those. It's going to come down to who had the ball last. Uh, they were both at pretty full strength. Neither was you know missing their quarterback or starting running back or anything else. And it it became a barn burner. Uh, but certainly lived up to a you know a watch list game of the week. One of the uh, the interesting stats that I found while I was researching this game, um, so Baker Mayfield threw for 305 yards, which is pretty good. 201 of those were after the catch, and this is this is not me trying to slight Baker of like oh it's everybody else doing it for him. It's more so like no, you look at this offense. And how it designs catch and run opportunities for all of these athletes that run 4-4. David Njoku had 150 yards largely after the catch because of how this offense is designed and how good it is at designing these catch and run opportunities for all these athletes and how good Baker Mayfield is at executing and throwing a catchable catchable ball Excuse me, that lets these guys run. Like, it, it, it's... It, I, I don't want to not credit Baker because of how many yards after catch this offense generates. Because like throwing a catchable ball that can give a guy a good angle to generate that yak, like that is a skill that Baker is very good at, especially when he's on the move 
on these bootlegs and stuff like that where he's hitting, you know, crossing routes into Joku that he breaks off for a long touchdown. Like, that is a skill. That is ball placement. So it, I, I posted that stat not to disparage Baker, and a lot of people took it that way. I just want to clarify, like, no, that's that's just me more complimenting the design of the offense than anything else. Um, I also want to talk about this narrative that, like, Odell Beckham Jr. is not good for the Browns because he only had like 20 yards in this game. Like part of the reason why so much stuff is underneath for cat or open underneath for catch and run opportunities is because of Odell Beckham Jr. And the attention he generates 20 yards down the field. Like there's a reason why there's so many voids there and it's because of Odell. And he's at the stage of his career now where it's like, he's already made a lot of money. Like he's comfortable in that role where it's like, hey, if DPJ is going to get 70 and Njoku is going to get 150, but we're putting up 42 points, he doesn't care. Like he's doing his role and he's happy with it. Like they're fine. This offense is entirely functional. I don't want to hear any more of this talk about OBJ's bad for Baker. He's doing his role and he's very good at it. And, uh, you know, maybe if this team was scoring 15 a game, we could have, a, have an issue here, but they're scoring 40. So I think they're doing okay. Yeah, I want to, in the same vein, I want to credit Kevin Stefanski and his staff because I think a lot of people that maybe aren't Cleveland fans or, or haven't been paying a ton of attention really over about the last 12 months since this offense started to come together and, and really be what it is or be what it can be. A lot of people thought, well, they have, look, they have the best offensive line in football starting last year. I wouldn't necessarily say that this year, but it, it's a top offensive line in football. They have, you know, two great running backs. And look, Stefanski's going to come out in heavy personnel and he's going to run plenty because he can design it well and he's got the personnel to support it. This offense can also flex. Like when you see the Chargers going off to the races and you know they're going to score 30, 40 points even, you got to get out of running the ball. And Stefanski and his staff and the team in general, like this is, a, this is an entire organizational effort went, all right, you know, <laughs> kick the chocks out of the wheels. We're going to, you know, light the engines. We're going to, we're going to take this thing airborne and, and we're going to, you know, we're in a boat race now. Like let's, let's see what we can do and how many points we can put up. And they, they flexed right up to 40 plus points. Like that is an adaptable offense full of playmakers that are being utilized and being put in the best possible situations by their coaches. So credit to Stefanski and his staff for saying, look, we got all the got years and years and years of first round draft picks, high draft picks, super talented athletes that we've acquired. Let's let's make it so that on any given week, any of them can go off and we can score as many points as we need to. Like later in the year, if we need to, you know, knuckle down and grind it out because it's a sloppy field or there's 40 mile an hour winds and we're not going to be able to throw the ball all over the yard. Great. We can do that too. We've, we've got the horses for that. Let's just do what we need to do on a, on a given week. And they almost did against, you know, a Chargers team that put up well over 40. That's, that's not a team that's going away anytime soon. I saw a stat. I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but it's like a, a team that has, um, over 500 total yards, 40 points, and no turnovers. Um, <laughs> the entire NFL in the Super Bowl era was like 401 and 0 in those situations until this game. <laughs> like yeah. it was a perfect offensive performance. They did every like so much so that this had literally never happened before. There had never been an offense that was that productive that lost a game. 
And that was because of the people on the other side of the ball that I want to talk about now, which is Justin Herbert. He was my preseason pick for MVP. Um, a lot of people laughed at me for that one. Who's laughing now? 400 yards, four touchdowns, no picks, another 30, and another rushing touchdown. After that, like, he's playing like an MVP right now. There's there's probably a short list of, I'd say, three guys. It's Lamar, Herbert. God, it might just be Lamar and Herbert. It might be a two a two-name list right now after week five, but he's on it. Like, whatever, whatever number of names you want to put, he's on it. Um, and he made some throws in this game. Like, beyond the busted coverages where he did his job and he hit him for touchdowns. There was one, like, halfway through the fourth quarter. I'll find it and I'll throw that one up, too. I'll just keep throwing film up. People seem to like that. And he, he threw this ball to Keenan on a deep seven that was fucking unbelievable. Like, just ridiculous. Ridiculous, and I feel like every single week now we're getting like I'm almost getting desensitized to it, where there's like a, just a crazy throw from Herbert. It was uh, <laughs> you remember in college when he was at Oregon, I think it was against UW, and he made that kind of throw, and we're like, God, if he could just do that all the time, he'd be great. Well, now he's doing it all the time, and now he's just making that throw against UW all the time, and he's playing like an MVP. He's just unbelievable. Like Austin Eckler, unbelievable. The offensive line, like Rashawn Slater's playing like a top five left tackle in the league, if not top three right now. He actually like told his running backs, hey, stop chipping Miles Garrett. I want to take him one-on-one. I'm better that way. And he was. Like he actually had some really good reps against Miles Garrett. Like this this offense is staggering to me. And uh, I, I don't know how the rest of the AFC is going to handle this. Yeah, Herbert, I think quietly or, or not so quietly, is playing like the majority of NFL fans think Pat Mahomes is playing. Mm. Right. Mm, he, that's spicy. Herbert Herbert is the guy right now that is putting up the reps that you would expect to come out of Pat Mahomes because, in to Pat's credit, he's done that over the last three seasons with such regularity that if you saw amazing pinpoint accurate throws all over the field at all levels. And you said it yourself that uh, I'd say it's two a week. We're getting at least two throws a week from Herbert with regularity that to me feel like Aaron Rodgers throws, right? Those, ah, how did he, you can't do that. Like you can't put that ball right there. He's doing it twice a week, every week, along with keeping the offense moving. It's not just these crazy shot plays that no one should be able to make. He's making those and he's making all the others. That's the only way you're putting up 47 points, right? He's, you talked about Baker's accuracy. His accuracy, Herbert's accuracy the week before was staggering. He was hitting guys like right in the collarbone when the defender was on leverage on their outside and he'd hit him right here on the turn. Like he is not just throwing the ball through a tire right now. He's throwing the ball through like a number 10 coffee can and it's all over the field at all levels. He's got massive arm strength. We know that, but he's, he's being efficient. He's being productive. And then on top of that, he's just throwing in those, what I'm going to call frosting plays, which are just like, whatever. Like you look at, there's a couple every week where you're just like, nobody makes that throw. That's that's an Aaron throw or Mahomes when he is 
on it, and he's not on it right now. He's not playing with as much consistency. He's still a great quarterback. This is not throwing Mahomes under the bus and saying he's fallen off the wagon. He hasn't, but he's not playing at that at the level that Herbert's playing at right now, which is just so freaking dialed that I, like you, am like, I don't really think anybody can handle that. Like, if he's having that game, he's got that surround of skill positions, he's got the reinforcements on the offensive line this year. Like, I don't think anybody can handle that smoke if they all come and play together. Like, I just don't know anybody in the AFC right now that could stand up and be like, oh, we'll take them on their best day. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. I uh, I think they play uh, – Who? Do, no, they don't play Tampa this year. That was last year. God, I would I would give anything to see this Chargers team go up against Tampa, though. Maybe we'll get it in February. Hint, hint. But God, yeah, the Chargers <laughs> are just incredible. They're four and one for a reason, and um, if they keep playing like this, I, as good as the AFC West is, I don't think anybody's going to be able to catch them. Like this, this is this is a yeah. very tall there's, order. To, I think to there's meet. one team right now that could take them, and it's not in the other conference. Who? We'll talk about them. They're, com- they're coming up here. Okay. Okay. I respect the tease. I I, I respect it. Uh, why don't we move on to three up number two here? Speaking of the Chiefs. Oh, now I know. <laughs> now, okay. I just saw that who it was. That didn't take very long. Bills Chiefs. Now yeah. I know what team you're talking about. Um, do Bills play the Chargers this year? I don't think they do. No, but I, if anybody right now, and again, it's right now because throughout the course of a season, teams go up and down, right? We talk about progression not being linear for players. It's not linear for teams either. There are teams, uh, we saw it last year with the Raiders. They started off on fire. They looked really good through the first half of the season, and then they fell completely off the table and, you know, off the end of the season. Like right now, if you had to, if you said, give me a team that you think could take all the Chargers smoke if they were hitting on all cylinders, I'd take the Bills hands down because the Bills have the number one scoring offense and the number one scoring defense in the NFL right now. Like, that's a team that could take full-on both barrels from the Chargers and maybe come out standing. Like, that would be my... If I had to lay folding money, that's who I would put it on. It wouldn't be a lot, (laughs) because I wouldn't be sure of the outcome of that game. But if anybody's got a chance against the Chargers, you know, going full boat, uh, it'd be the Bills right now. But more importantly, it's because Josh Allen, at least right now, can can match Herbert crazy throw for crazy throw. Like looking at this Chiefs game, there was there was a throw that he had. It was like fifty five yards on a line, just dropping it in the bucket. I think uh, to Emmanuel Sanders, if I recall correctly, for a touchdown. The Sanders touchdown was like 35 yards. I posted about that throw. And oh, I my sa- God. And I said, Josh Allen's ability to throw a ball 35 yards on a line off a flip will never cease to amaze me because it was a flick. He was he was kind of floating around in the pocket. He was moving forward a little bit, and he went like this. And when you do that, when you just kind of – toss your arm up there the ball should not launch out of your hand like that it should not stay that flat and it should not get there that fast and it did all of those things and 
you know, you saw you were talking about uh, the, you know, the safety in the corner looking at each other in the previous game going, what are you doing? There's a shot of Tyron Matthew looking at Dan Sorensen going, what are you doing in this game on one of those throws? It wasn't the throw to Sanders. So throw deep down the right after about five seconds. Sorensen thought, well, the ball you know, must have gone somewhere by now. Uh-uh. And, you know, Josh is one of the few players in the NFL that can get that ball there in enough of a hurry again, on a line, on target, to to embarrass the defense. And it, it gives them the ability to score from pretty much anywhere on the field at any time. And I just want the audience to know, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see it right now. When we say 35-yard touchdown, that's what it shows up in the box score. That was far hash from like the 42 or 43. So like realistic distance, it was a lot more than 35 yards. And as you said, I mean, I don't I don't know if that thing went more than 12 feet off the ground the entire time. Just a, a piss missile of the highest order. It just doesn't match in your head. When you <laughs> see a guy, and I know Josh Allen is a big, strong, athletic guy. Like he is all of those things. He is tall. He is obviously very strong. And he is a very good athlete, right? But you see him kind of like this was not a set torque with your midsection and fire with proper follow through throw. This was a ah, I'm kind of shoulders to the line and I'm just going to sling my arm like that. You expect that ball to go 15, maybe 20 yards, um, you know, real, real travel distance. It went more than twice that far at a speed that just didn't look like it matched how he'd moved his hand. Uh, it just doesn't, when I say it doesn't match in your brain, it's like your eyes are like, he moved like that and the ball went like that. Those two things are not, you just don't see those things. Like I, there are very few other athletes in the NFL who can generate that kind of velocity on what looks like pretty soft arm action. It's Herbert Rogers. Lamar can do it. That's true. Lamar does have a hose. Yeah. People don't when, realize and that. And he will occasionally do it off platform from a three quarter arm angle or something. And he'll just, he did it a couple of times again in much shorter situations, but he did it again last night. There were a couple of open throws over the middle where he was sort of rotating the pocket and he, he threw it like I would throw a dart at a dartboard in a bar. And I'm not kidding. You look at the throws about 15, 20 yards and he just went and it went, Right to the receiver. And I thought, man, if I tried to do that with an NFL football, it would go like five yards and, you know, nose into the dirt. He just, he was kind of up. He had a little bit of a window. The guy was open. And instead of like turning to working, no, he just went whoop. And it went right to him. And, you know, again, it's, you see occasionally a quick release out of him at a strange arm angle and the ball just jumps. And you're like, oh yeah, right. He does, he does have a huge arm. It uh kind of reminds me of like, prime Mike Vick when like when he would like really really drive those throws in his prime where like they just didn't did not obey the laws of physics at all like that that's the kind of arm talent it reminds me of just very very rare for all these guys um more notes from this game Chiefs defense I'm I'm waiting for them to correct and it's just not happening week after week I'm starting to think that maybe it just won't get better. Like the pass rush, other than Chris Jones, when Chris Jones is on the field, is just not there at all. 
Defensive line is playing like absolute garbage. All of these coverage rotations that they've leaned on the last couple years aren't really working. People are seeing them coming. Um, they got the the big ball to Stephon Diggs off that because they knew the rotation was coming where they were going to get Diggs one-on-one with Sorensen. And if Diggs didn't turn around to showboat, it would have been a walk-in touchdown. But, like, people people now know, like, hey, you know, they when they're in dime against three by one, like that's the coverage they're going to do. They're not anytime Tyron's walking down, he's not blitzing. He's going to that hole. And if you're just, if you hold the other safety, you're going to get one-on-one with the backside. And like, they knew they were going to get it. Like, that's why they were so confident in it. Like you saw Josh Allen changing the play at the line. Cause he's like, I know what you're doing. You've done it a million times. Let me throw this bomb. So I, I feel like the coverages have started to get found out. Defensive lines, not getting any pressure. Linebackers are horrific in coverage. Like there's so it's not just one problem. There's so many different problems here that like I don't even know where to begin. And there's no easy fix here because it's it's like no. okay if if your coverage rotations, which were the one thing that was your saving grace, are getting found out, what else do you got? Like at least you could generate turnovers before off that because you were catching quarterbacks unaware. You were getting guys in spots they weren't supposed to be, but now it's expected. So you got nothing else, and there, there's no way to adjust. The players just aren't good enough. So I, I don't know what Steve Spagnuolo is going to do because there's nowhere else to run. Yeah, the connective tissue between the layers is is a little bit shredded. You know, if if it was an athlete, you'd you'd have him go for surgery and shut him down. Um, they're not getting pressure is the root cause of this defense's struggles right the longer they have to stay out again with known rotations and every other issue that you mentioned right it's when one piece of this uh, it's really like a recipe falls apart the other parts aren't strong enough on their own right to support it and in sometimes when you look back at the Chiefs' success they never were right but the one part was working so it hides them and i remember I, it reminds me of what sean desai is doing in chicago we sort of said a lot of words and wrote a lot of ink about the fact that they didn't have any defensive backs in Chicago and they were going to get torched because they just, they had Jalen Johnson and that was it. Eddie Jackson is a shell of himself for the last couple of years and they just didn't have anybody else. So we just said, look, it's passing league and they're going to get crushed. What we didn't count on is that Sean Desai was going to come out, be able to rotate five guys and, you know, have Matt come back. Robert Quinn came raging back. Uh, everybody's getting sacks and the opposing offenses aren't having enough time to pick that coverage part. Kansas City is the opposite problem, right? Frank Clark has not generated a ton of pressure when he's been in there. And that was surprising to me. He was one of my picks for preseason defensive MVP because I really thought the move to edge was going to be good for him. What I didn't count on is the middle of the line not adding any pressure. You said it with their linebackers in coverage. They are not prototypical. They certainly ain't the Arizona Cardinals. When was the last time you thought you'd say that, right? <laughs> um, and Sorensen's kind of fallen off a cliff because he's been put on an island too much. And it's just not a winning formula. Like the Chiefs are going to continue to get picked apart. And like you, I don't know how they're going to tighten that up. I don't see a way forward to make it. I mean, they can... They can always execute a little better, but it's not going to get a lot better anytime soon. To put it in perspective, their defense is on pace to give up more points 
than the last year with Bob Sutton, which cost them a Super Bowl. Like that's that's the level we're at right now, where Bob Sutton's defense would be an upgrade. It's one of the craziest falls from grace that I can remember. Because like on paper, this was going to be a top ten defense going into the year, and it's like literally bottom one. Like there's <laughs> nobody worse, <laughs> and it's not. Yeah, Benjamin Solak, um, our buddy, wrote a, wrote an article this week that he said you know the Chiefs' defense is a problem, and it might be for real this time. That came out this week, and he's not alone. Um, people are, I don't say people are noticing, people are speaking up about it because now they're like, okay, we're five weeks in. This isn't a, you know, you had one bad game, takes a while to gel. All, all those excuses are kind of out the window. You're playing quality teams now, and you can't hold them, right? You just can't hold them, and you can't say to any offense, Mahomes or otherwise, look, you got to score 40 a week or we're going to get, we're going to get run off the field. And now it's score 40 with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire on IR. Um, you know, it's it's score 40 when Tyreek is getting bracketed. And it's basically a like Pat, a lot. And it's like, okay, it's Pat Mahomes and Travis Kelsey versus 22 guys. Like, that's what it is right now. And as as legendary as Mahomes is, as legendary as Kelsey is, you can't play two versus 22 and win football games. You just can't. No. The rest and of Mahomes, the team is not good It's enough. the same thing about support on the offensive side. You're seeing when I talked earlier about Mahomes and Herbert. Like, Mahomes is starting to press, right? You saw him through the middle part of that Bills game. He was, he was pressing. And when quarterbacks press, they don't play loose. They don't. And we've seen Pat play so incredibly relaxed and loose and make plays. And he's not now. He knows, right, that he has to do more of it. Like, Josh Gordon hasn't come into that number two role yet they they didn't have that everybody said that was the lacking <laughs> commensurately often you know defenses are like fine we'll take away Tyreek because we know what he can do fine you can have you and Kelsey all day like pitch and catch let's go you know we'll bring guys we'll let them catch it we'll bring guys to them and we don't think you're gonna run us off the field with with you two so unless you got something else in your bag we feel okay about this and that's how they're playing them right now and it's it's working out for the opposition this week's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. fall is always a busy time of year you have a lot of holidays a lot of family gatherings at least for me it's probably my busiest work period of the year because you know football and at least this time of year i tend to have a lot less time on my hands to go grocery shopping and meal planning and of course cooking and that's where HelloFresh comes in. For me at least, because my house is kind of way away from all the local grocery stores, my average grocery store trip takes well over an hour, and that's not counting the time it takes to plan out my meals and put together shopping lists and all that. But with HelloFresh, I just get all of these portioned out ingredients delivered right to my door. I don't have to go anywhere, I don't have to plan everything, and every meal that I've gotten has been amazing. HelloFresh also makes it easy to make all of their recipes too just by following the instructions, even if you're relatively new to cooking. Plus, an average HelloFresh customer saves 28% in cost compared to going to their local grocery store and buying the same ingredients to make the same meals. And because each meal is portioned out perfectly, you're not buying a bunch of extra food that ends up going to waste too, so HelloFresh is more sustainable as well. For people that have crazy schedules or people that just want to learn to cook great food that doesn't cost a lot of money, HelloFresh has been an incredible service for me for a very long time, and I know that you're going to love it too. So if you want to try it out for yourself, go to HelloFresh.com bootleg14 and use promo code bootleg14 for up to 14 free meals 
including free shipping. Again, that is HelloFresh.com slash bootleg14 and use promo code bootleg14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. All right, uh, three up. Number three here was the Monday night spectacular between the Colts and Ravens. I don't really know how else to describe it. Uh, it was an insane game. I didn't even see the whole thing. I, I came in when uh, the Ravens were down 22 to 9 because I was, you know, researching the Gruden stuff and, you know, handling film rooms. I was, I was like working, getting ready for the pod because I was like, I don't know if we're going to be recording about the Gruden stuff. And I, I didn't even start watching Monday Night Football until the Ravens started their comeback. And so I watched the rest of the game before that comeback today so that I could talk about the full game. Um, and what, what I took away was the rest of the game before that comeback was not nearly as entertaining as like the final 10 minutes because there wasn't a whole lot that had like, okay, you had the Jonathan Taylor touchdown, uh, like that, that crazy screen where it just seemed like everybody took a terrible angle all at once and against a running back that runs four, three, nine and predictably he's going to house that when everybody takes bad angles. Um, you know, you had Carson Wentz making some really gorgeous throws you had, uh, you know, the, the Darius Leonard forced fumble on the goal line, just a, a crazy play by him and then there was the lateral that I just absolutely loved like the 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 Colts were playing great but man that last 10 to 12 minutes shit just went entirely off the rails and just completely washed everything else from my brain because so much happened in that fourth quarter like we talk about the fourth quarter between Browns and Chargers like just as much happened in the fourth quarter between the Ravens and Colts I don't even really know where to where to begin here um, other than, holy shit, Lamar Jackson's pretty good, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, Lamar Jackson. We uh, we could talk about him, but I oh boy, we'll talk about him in a bit. This game, I started a little bit earlier than you, about a quarter earlier than you. Uh, didn't get to watch the first quarter. Was making dinner and uh, you know, not expecting a ton of fireworks. I came down and you know, it was a it's a pretty straightforward game mid second quarter. And it was definitely the Colts game. They weren't leading by a ton, but they were making plays. Carson Wentz looked pretty accurate. Taylor, big run. You know, not surprising. Very talented runner, very talented athlete. But in general, they were taking it to the Ravens, and the Ravens were misfiring. Like, the Ravens didn't have anything going on offense. And then they go up 22-9, to right? And you're thinking... That's about the time I'm going to quit watching this, right? Same friend texted me later at the end of the game and said, and to think I almost turned that off when it was 22 to 9. Well, I did something else. I cracked a very large beer that I took a picture of and put on Twitter and thought, well, if I got to sit through the end of the Colts beating up on the Ravens, might as well have myself a nice tall boy that's 10.5% or something. It's a double IPA. Jesus Christ. No, you... I. I think I sent you the picture. I said, you you better be committed if you open one of these. You're not driving anywhere. You're not doing anything else. Like, it's a ride and you're on it. So I start drinking it and the game starts to turn, like, very clearly. People say momentum's not real. Cough, cough, bullshit. Um, No, the, the worm turns in this one. The Ravens start firing and they get a, t- they get a quick touchdown. And I was like, oh. Text the same friend. All right, well, 
things just got interesting, right? It's still not a game, but at least it's not, you know, 22 to 9. And then it just kept going. And I, I don't know about you, but it never really felt to me like after that sort of quick touchdown from the Ravens that the Colts were really going to like put their foot down and establish, you know, uh, it's a little bit like what the Chargers did at the end of the game the week before where they just said, nope, we're going to, we're going to run them over, right? We're going to, we're going to lock in. We're going to start handing the ball to Austin Eckler and we're going to run them off the field. Didn't feel like the Colts were going to be able to achieve that. And there was a lot of attrition. The Colts cornerback core was just shredded. They're down to three guys total. um, All three of which I bet you couldn't name. And you ended up with, a barn burner of a game that at one point the Colts were winning 22 to nine in the third quarter and looked pretty handily like they were going to put it away. I swear it's a rule. The primetime games just can't be boring this year. And I also got to talk about that Jack Doyle dive. (laughs) It's a dive (laughs) because like that was a veteran move. What he did. Cause it was, Oh, let me shove this dude's head into the ground because I know he's going to get up and push back. And you could see he was just waiting for it. He's like, look, we it's third and 17, I think, at that point. He's like, we need these yards. We need this first down. I'm just going to bait it by shoving this dude's head into the ground, which was dirty as fuck, by the way. And then when he comes back at me, I'm going to take my dive. And he did. And he got rewarded for it. Like, I want that to be either reviewable or I want the league to be able to look at that shit and and find a guy for doing that because it's cheap and I feel like it ruins the integrity of the game because it's like, no, you guys got stopped. And the only way that you were getting more yards and a fresh set of downs was to shove a dude's face into the ground and bait a response. Like, that's chicken shit. And I tweeted out, like, when they missed the field goal, I was like, that's the football gods intervening because you're not supposed to win a game that way. You're not supposed to win a game by baiting penalties. Yeah, and I don't think we should have to rely on the football gods. And this this one is as old as time. And it's, you know, the, the old adage, right? Don't hit second in the NFL. And I saw somebody post, and I unfortunately don't remember who it was on Twitter. And I love the idea, which is, well, then change it and flag both guys. Right? If there's a guy that hits first and he puts his hands down and puts his chin out and he takes the return shot and goes, hey, 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 because we've seen that forever. That's been in the game for 25 years, right? I can punch this guy in the ribs on the way up and then when he hits me in the helmet, I'm going to throw my head back and throw my hands up and he's going to get flagged. That's happened forever. You want to you cut that crap out of the game? Flag them both. It's an offsetting penalty. Nothing happens. Nobody gets any advantage. Right. So the guy that takes the cheap shot and the guy that takes the dumb return shot. Right. Sorry. Neither one of you get anything. We're right back to where we started again. Right? At least make so, it reviewable or something. I fully like, agree <laughs> because it was a very clear dive on Doyle's part, which was which was gross. Um, I am not a fan uh, of that. Um, so, yeah, I didn't like it. It turned out to be. A fascinating game with a very interesting ending. Uh, one stat that caught me uh, caught me today. I've been a Lamar Jackson defender. It's been a long, hard road since his days at Louisville, explaining to people that no, he wasn't a run-first quarterback and everything else. 
This one still, uh, I, I, I'm tired of those conversations because they're old and outdated. Uh, but Ryan Mink uh, posted on Twitter, Lamar Jackson has more passing yards than Patrick Mahomes and more rushing yards than Aaron Jones. God, that's crazy. It's and you're just like, insanity. Why are we having this conversation anymore? And I, I'm just going to say it. Like, I've been saying it for years quietly and under my breath and in, in DMs to people. I'm extremely tired. So miss me in my mentions with Lamar Jackson. Uh, any combination of A, cannot throw. B, isn't a passer. C, should be a running back. D, is a run first quarterback. Uh, will never lead the Ravens to anything. Like, Just sweep all that shit, put it in a corner somewhere else, and say what you really mean, which is, I don't like him for whatever reason. I'm not going to put that on you, but I just don't like him, and I don't want him to succeed. So I'm going to take every milestone he achieves, every stack stat that he puts up, which are crazy when you start looking at what he's achieved in his time in the league, you're not stopping Lamar Jackson. He is a one-of-one one athlete at the quarterback position. Uh, you could maybe say Kyler, but I, I really think Lamar Jackson is is a superior quarterback to Kyler right now. And call it a hot take if you want to. Their, their ability to pick up rare first downs with their feet is about equal, I would say. But miss me with this Lamar Jackson can't play quarterback shit. Just stop and say... Say what you really mean, which is, I don't like Lamar Jackson, and I'm mad that he's good. Just, <laughs> just say that, and we'll be good. But don't don't bring up, like, they're going to stop him. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. More passing yards than Patrick Mahomes. More running yards than Aaron Jones. That's a ridiculous. Somebody, uh, I think it was Good Morning Football, put up. Um, they were putting up team totals for offense in yardage. And Lamar's total is like 16th in the league. God, that's insane. He's he's like dead middle of the league in offense that he has produced versus what all teams have produced. Like, just miss me with this Lamar Jackson can't play quarterback stuff. Just go away. I don't, I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. That's, that's just insanity. All and of he also, insanity. I think, is put to he's put to bed the the whole thing of like, oh, he can't come back. This was a nineteen point comeback, a nineteen point comeback. Like that's uh, he's he's crushed every narrative possible. And so, if the narrative still exists, that's on that's on them. Yeah, that's on them because take it and say take it and say another thing because all the things. Yeah. I'm tired. I'm not gonna do it anymore. Just go away. Uh. Three down, number one, speaking of missed field goals and or blocked field goals, uh, it was the kicker apocalypse this past week in the NFL. 25 <laughs> missed kicks, which, if you're wondering, that is the most missed kicks in one week of football since week 11, 1987. I was not even a speck in my father's eye at that point. Uh, I, I I was born in 1991. That was four years before I was born. You were a sophomore or junior in high school. I was I was a junior in high school. The Bears were two years removed from winning the Super Bowl. Um, yeah, 87's been a bit, and 
I the first game I turned on this week was uh yeah, it was uh it was the Mason Crosby Bowl. <laughs> oh god, I felt like, so bad for well, him. Well, I mean, I, I had watched a little bit of the London game, but then I went upstairs and made breakfast and the first, you know, normal East Coast time slot game I came down and it's Mason Crosby like see Mason Crosby make He's a very reliable kicker. I've seen him make a lot of big kicks. I've seen him make a lot of kicks in a row. And, you know, (laughs) there's this little brilliant bit of, like, the game log off NFL.com between (laughs) the Bengals and the Packers where it's like miss field goal, interception, miss field goal, miss field goal, miss field goal. And you're just like, what is going on? Nobody wants to win the game. And I thought, oh, well, this is isolated. It's just one of those weird games where nobody can make a kick. And then they start stacking up. And then I see the the stat for missed PATs this week. And it starts to become, like you said, kickerpocalypse. It, I swear the whole week was haunted. I put out a, a humor tweet that said, hey, I have an idea for making the NFL more competitive. For just one week, no kicker gets to make a kick. <laughs> like, hear me out. Right. And it just felt like that. Like every time you turn on highlighted, even in the Monday night game, like I had written the stat into the agenda before the Monday night game. You're like, eh, we got to update it. <laughs> Blanket ship missed another, like several more missed kicks. And I'm just like, <laughs> make it stop. Like poor kickers, just, you know, make a kick. It was, it was notable. It, it goes in the down. It could have easily gone in three. Interesting. It was, uh, it's been a long time since, uh, you know, the league missed that many kicks. And it had a, a huge effect on the end result of a lot of these games. Like, the Packers shouldn't have won that game, right? But Well, you could, you could argue did. that if they made the first two, because there was five missed kicks in the last two minutes in overtime alone. You could argue if they made the first two, they would have won anyway. And the only reason why, since he was even in position to miss their game-winning kicks <laughs> potential because, game-winning field goal yes. it was because green bay missed a couple game-winning kicks so it's like it, it was it was awful it was just awful and uh, i felt really bad for mason crosby but he was able to come back and nail the game winner eventually and hopefully kind of get his confidence back for for next week but yeah uh that's why justin tucker can just write himself whatever check he wants because the ravens never have to deal with this ever like he's he's worth his weight in gold for that reason alone um three down number two is the washington football team defense which was great on paper before the season started you look at defensive line loaded with talent linebackers we thought were improved on paper secondary theoretically good players all over they're awful like, giving up 33 points to us, and I know, yeah, the Hail Mary happened, fine, whatever. Even if we take out the Hail Mary, giving up that many points to a Saints team where their best receiver is Marcus Callaway, it's just inexcusable. And, like, this was not the only week. Like, they've got lit up and lit up and lit up, and, like, they're towards the bottom of the list in virtually every single defensive metric you can find. Jamin Davis has struggled to say the least, after being the 19th overall pick. He's not nearly played as well as some of the other linebackers taken in the first couple rounds. JOK has been awesome. Micah Parsons in his role has been great. Zayvon Collins has been good. Like, he's he's been a, a huge disappointment. And just nobody's playing well, and nobody's playing together. There's coverage busts all over the place. I don't know, man. It's 
it's just crazy to me how a theoretically talented defense can be this insufferably bad. Yeah, we know there's a lot of change in the NFL from year to year and that teams aren't the same. But in the case of the Washington defense, they were really good. They overachieved last year. And even if you're accounting for the theme of regression to the mean, right, relaxing more towards the expected result, they added talent in the offseason. They put more focus on the defense. So it was like, even with regression, it might be a small regression, but it should be pretty close to the same. Of course, a lot of people said it'll be way better, which there's no guarantee of. I think what catches most of us really by the biggest surprise is how much difference between even last year's result and this year's result. Like it's fallen off a cliff. They are not, to your point, they are playing poor uh, execution defense, poor technical defense. They just look lost. And it was supposed to be the strength of that team. We were expecting the offense to be explosive. Uh, you know, Fitz got hurt, but it just seems like overall there's been a tremendous amount of drop. It's not just, oh, they're only playing as well or just a little bit worse than they were last year. It's they added stuff and they're playing much worse than last year. And that is, that's just one of those paper and grass debates, right? On paper, they were improved. On grass, they are absolutely not improved. They are much worse than they were last year. And one of the one of the things that's surprising to me is like Landon Collins has completely fallen off a cliff. Like he's he's still effective I think as a box player, but in terms of him in coverage, it's night and day compared to his prime with the Giants. Like it's it's stunning to me. And then the linebackers in particular, like it's not just Jamin Davis, like Holcomb's been really bad in coverage. Bostic has been atrocious in coverage. Um, it's I, I don't know what the fix is here. If you can't guard the middle of the field because none of your linebackers, like, honestly, that's probably the reason why they're not calling a lot of man coverage because they don't trust their guys to cover. But, like, it, the zone stuff isn't working either. So it's it's similar thing to Kansas City where it's like, I don't even know what the fix is here. Well, I, I think the horses playing up front is is what could be the difference between them and Kansas City, right? They they have more yeah. talent up front than Kansas City, but they need to play like it, right? They have they have two tremendous players up front and those guys need to carry them like to cover those gaps, right? Because the secondary is not covering, like you said the linebackers can't cover a lick. That's going to have to come from pressure, and they might be able to get it out of their athletes, whereas there's nobody coming to save Kansas City. But again, they have to execute, and if they don't, you're right. No easy fix. But it's that's the thing is there isn't the pressure this year that there was last year because even Chase Young, he's only getting three, three and a half pressures a game on average. Like, that's not good enough. Like, you're looking at Miles Garrett. He's getting... Almost double that. Miles Garrett has 30 pressures. Chase Young is 18. And you're expecting Chase Young to play up to this Miles Garrett level because of where he was drafted in the rookie year he had. Like, he was on our watch list for Defensive Player of the Year. And it's just not happening. Like, like they're honestly getting better pass rush out of, you know, John Allen and, and Darren Payne right now than Chase Young. And I, I just think that if you're not getting that pressure with four and you're expecting John Bostic to hold up in coverage for three seconds, 
yeah, it's, it's not going to work for you. If you're, if you're playing quarters and you're expecting Landon to take a deep post one-on-one, sorry. <laughs> so it, I think you are right. I think it does come down to the defensive line really needing to take over because short of that, they've really got nothing <laughs> <Because> else. <laughs> who else is gonna is kind of what it comes down to. For those for those that are really surprised that Bostic is struggling as a fan of the team that drafted him and struggled through his first few years in the league, like I was more surprised honestly by his play last year because he honestly played pretty well last year. And that to me was shocking because John Bostic not a very good football player when he was drafted with the Bears, and he wasn't even a great football player when he went on to the Patriots. Like, he played out of his mind last year, and I thought, man, they can they can really take some average linebackers and turn them into something special. Uh, you know, they're really coaching him up, and this year he has regressed to the mean and probably beyond, but I think that's actually a lot closer to his career average. So I'm a little bit less surprised by how he's playing this year. I was really surprised by how well he played last year were it not for kansas city we would be talking about washington as a historically bad defense i'll leave it right there because they're giving up 31 points a game and kansas city's giving up 32 and a half so it's really it's like as as much shit as we give spagnola and all those guys like washington's right there with them and they have a lot more talent so it's even more inexcusable I think is is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, it's a tough way to win games. If you're giving up 30 every week, if you know, if your offense walks into the building on a Sunday knowing we got to put up 32 or else, we don't even have a chance, that's a lot of pressure. And the offense will start to press. And look, they're on their backup quarterback as well. Like, it just, again, it's the two parts of the team kind of trying to support each other and going, well, the defense isn't going to hold it up and the defense going, well, the offense isn't going to score 30. So we're kind of, we're starting from a maybe we get lucky point every week. And that's that's not a great way to run a railroad. Um, speaking of things that are struggling, that absolutely shouldn't be struggling on paper, uh, 49ers offense after week one has really, really sputtered. You know, they put up the the 41 against Detroit in week one, and we're like, cool, they're back. They're great. Everything's awesome. And then ever since then, it was 17 in week two. They popped in week three against uh, the Packers with 28, but that was the high point for the rest of the season. It's it's 21, and then they hit the, the bottom of the barrel this week with 10 against Arizona. And even with the 28 against the Packers, like if you remember, if you actually watched that game, they weren't really getting anything done for a long time. It wasn't until Trey Lance came in on the red zone and, you know, scored on that keeper that that they even were able to put points on the board. So the 28's a little bit of a a misnomer because it, it took them really kind of diving into the bag of tricks to even get that first points, you know? Um, so I, I look at this 49ers offense, and it's a very similar problem to the Washington defense where it's like, okay, I see, you know, a, a capable quarterback in, uh, in Jimmy Garoppolo who's, like, not great but also not bad. Um, you know, you, you got Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle, who unfortunately got hurt, um, you know, Trey Sermon, who I think is a really good running back. Like, Mitchell's got speed. The offensive line on paper is really good. Trent Williams is playing out of his fucking mind right now. Um and then you got you know this young hyper talented quarterback that can do a lot with his feet. Like there's pieces here that should be able to put up more than ten points, and they're not doing it. And over the last three weeks, like they are twenty third 
in points per game over the last three games. And that's just not acceptable with this kind of coaching, this kind of offensive line, these kind of weapons. I, I, I it's, it's fascinating to me because again, it's another thing of like, when you, when you look at these rosters, when we're doing these division breakdowns and we have all these lofty expectations, then you actually get on the field and they play like shit. There's like almost like this disconnect where we have to almost reset how we look at these teams. And uh, it's a struggle for me to figure out what they are right now. Like they, they don't even want to use Brandon Ayuk. Like he's losing snaps to Sherfield and Travis Benjamin. And then they put him on the field and he converts a second and 25. So it's like he's making plays for you. Why aren't you playing him? But they just refuse to. They're not giving Trey Sermon a carry till there's like four minutes left in the game. And he rips it off for eight yards on his first touch. So it's like, I I don't know what to make of this team because it's not like they're lacking in talent. They're just not using their talent. It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre, and I don't know how to look at this team. Yeah, it's certainly not what we expected. We said they're going to regress to the mean going up. The reason they were down last year is because the rash of injuries, they weren't able to keep their top playmakers on the field. They have that plus, right? They've added some. They're going to return to health. They're going to they're going to function like we expect a Shanahan offense to function. And I think that might be the nugget as I think about it is how does a Shanahan offense function? And Shanahan offense functions off the run. And I'm wondering if the running back attrition just really hasn't caught up with Shanahan a little bit, right? We we make the joke that it's just an endless supply line and he can grab anybody as a UDFA, plug them in, and they're going to rip off the century mark. Well, they've had a lot of attrition at only one spot this year, and it's the running back spot, right? Like Mitchell missed games. Raheem Mosert was out early for the whole year. Uh, you know, they've got Sermon, but he is a rookie. Um, they've, they've lost, you know, three running backs before the fifth week. And I wonder if they're just not being able to rip off those runs. Cause when they can't all the crossing route and yak stuff that they want to build off of that is not as effective, right? Cause now defenses can just sit there and clog the middle and say, yeah, you're going to throw it to Debo and hope he breaks one. We're again, going to let Debo catch it at five or six yards. And even though he's a big, tough son of a gun, we're going to fire three guys down and clog his legs up and he's going down. And you can get all the six or eight yard completions to Debo you want, but you're not going to get that 35 yard open edge sweep that, you know, is going to rip off your explosive plays. So kind of cutting that foundation of the run out of the Shanahan offense or, or the effectiveness out of the running game just seems to have hamstrung the whole thing because they haven't suffered injuries for the most part in the rest of their receiver core. Kittle just got hurt. Their offensive line has been very good. Um, I too will throw a card into the Trent Williams as a superhuman ring and say, <laughs> if you appreciate really good football, you need to watch what Trent Williams is doing right now. Cause it's going to be teach tape that people look at 10 years from now and say that it's going to be comparable to what Joe Thomas did in his time in Cleveland. Like it's that good in the run game, in the pass game, Trent Williams is making plays every week that a guy that big should not be able to make. And he's doing it with regularity and he's doing it with absolute dominance so although the rest of the offense is sputtering trent williams is a demigod check him out um but other than that that's all i got is that maybe cutting cutting the run to the core the way it was so early in the season losing so many backs so quickly just really kind of kicked some of the bricks out of the foundation and the rest of it they just 
haven't been able to get to. And maybe they do just need to rip the Band-Aid off, you know, uh, bring in the rookie quarterback, stick Ayuk at the at the X and just say, you're not leaving. Stick Trey Sermon in the backfield and say, we're going to, you know, look, Trey Lance is going to take a couple of hits because you can't block that well. He's a big guy. Try not to get him killed. But we're just going to go with some stability here. And we're just going to stick with this because this is our most talented group of playmakers that we have left. And we're just going to, we're going to go, you know, Jimmy's and Joe's over X's and O's. We're going to, we're going to count on you guys to make some plays because you're the most talented athletes we have and see if that works. Because if you look at what they have put up, say that 28, you know, was a 21, it would be 17, 21, 21, and 10 over the last four weeks. That's that's not typically going to be enough to win you a game in the modern NFL. Yeah, but I mean that's that's the thing is when they give, you know, going to the Jimmy Jimmy's and Joe's approach, when they actually give these young guys opportunities to make plays, they are making them. Like we said, they, they didn't get their first points against Green Bay until they put, uh, you know, Trey Lance on the field. You know, they they were down second and 25 because of a personal foul. Throw it to Ayuk. He makes a couple moves in space, converts it. Like, Travis Benjamin's not doing that. You know, you give your first carry to Sermon, and he hits the edge, breaks a tackle, seven yards, and then never gets another carry again. So that's that part to me confuses me because (laughs) even if you're worried about the liability of him getting your quarterbacks hit, which is typically the roadblock for rookie running backs getting into the game is, hey, you're going to get our most valuable asset killed. Please don't, right? But if you're you, worried about that, why are you giving Trey Lance 16 carries? I, like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you that it doesn't seem, uh, I'll just use the word congruous right now. It doesn't seem of a piece or or of a unified idea or philosophy. It It, it is not firing on all cylinders, and they're going to have to, kind of reforge that on the run, which is going to be difficult. They're in the season now and they're going to have to make some changes and it'll be fascinating to see what kind of coaching job Kyle and his staff do to, to adjust because they need to score more points. Bottom line, if they're going to win, they're in a terribly rough division. You're not going to win a lot of games with 17. Like that's not going to happen. So they're going to have to make some adjustments and they're going to have to take some lumps doing it. Uh, I'll just say they're going to have to risk it if they want a shot at the biscuit. And if they don't, they're going to continue to struggle. Yeah, I just, something's got to change. Like the the game plan wasn't great because their game plan was to give their quarterback more carries than their running back, which in itself is usually not a good idea. You don't even have your most talented receiver on your field to make up for the fact that you don't have your most talented tight end on the field. I don't know. I I just I've not understood much about what Kyle Shanahan is doing this year, which I never thought I would say. But it's 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 very much reeks of I'm Kyle Shanahan, I'm the smartest guy in the room, trust me. And it's like, well, it's hard to trust you when you're putting up 10 points cuz you refuse to play your most talented players. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like I understand like you went to a Super Bowl not too long ago. You were the OC for Atlanta when you went to a Super Bowl. But in every year but the Super Bowl year, you're well under 500. So I feel like there's less goodwill built up there than we think. Because other than that one magical year, like this, this has not been a successful run. 
It just hasn't. So I think we need to put the whole I'm smarter than everybody, I can scheme up points thing aside and actually play your talent. Because without talent, they're just not going to win that many games. And uh, with that being said, let's move on to three interesting. Number one, these are three teams, players, coaches, anything that we just find interesting that we want to talk about that happened in the week of the NFL. Um, Rookie arrivals. Yeah, I'm going to say necessity is the mother of all production. And I realize that's a paraphrase uh, from the original quote. Two rookies who came in with a lot of anticipation this year took flight this weekend, and it was only because their teams were short players. I don't think it should have been that way. You don't think it should have been that way, but Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Toney cracked the lineup this week because there was a bunch of attrition on their teams, and both of them showed why they should have been on the field a little bit earlier. Uh, Kyle Pitts puts up nine catches, 119 yards, and a TD. Um, looks fairly dominant in that game in London. He It looked like Matt Ryan could get him whenever he wanted to. And that's the kind of thing that we said about Kyle Pitts in his scouting report. Look, he's 6'6". He's got a tremendous reach, great set of hands, can get himself open is basically just a hugely oversized X receiver. If you want to look at him that way, you can play him inside, you can play him outside. And that's really what it looked like. Arthur Smith finally said, all right, well, we're down to some receivers. So Kyle, get in there. And, oh, geez. Yeah, you ripped off 120 yards in a TD. Neat. Kadarius Tony, same thing. Had not had significant snaps in the Giants lineup. Goes 10 catches for 189 yards. Okay, going to be tough to pull him out of the lineup from now on. Now, Daniel Jones is hitting his stride. Daniel Jones actually got knocked out of this game. He still put up 10 for 189. Kadarius Toney in space is one of the most dangerous guys there is. And I don't know whether it's Jason Garrett saying, you're a rookie and I don't like rookies, or I don't really know how to scheme up a game with a lot of space to it. I'm more timing and rhythm, whatever. Like, I, I don't care what it was. Kadarius Toney gets his shot on the field, and to his credit, go have a day, Rook. 10 for 189. I think going forward, I hope going forward, both of these coaching staffs realize, okay, maybe we should have got them on a little earlier. It's only week five. We can play them every week from now on, have them in conversation for rookie of the year at the end of the year and not look so terrible. Everybody will forget about the first month where we stuffed them on the bench. Um, So it is one of those things that maybe we don't like the reasons they finally got on the field, but once they did, we surely like the results. And the thing with Tony, like, I understand, you know, he didn't even start practicing till like a week before the season or something like that. He was on the COVID list, everything like that. It was, it was a mess. Um, but at the same time, you have a very unique athlete who's very dynamic in space. You couldn't at least just put him on the field for some screens or like, hey, you're running an option route or hey we're putting you at number three and you're running the return against a linebacker like i'm not saying you need to put him out there all the time but just give him like 10 15 snaps in a game where he's running stuff that he ran at florida which was (laughs) return route return route return route like that's all he did and he was immensely productive like you couldn't just do that like just put him on the field and just have him run the same stuff he did at florida and then just kind of work in the other stuff as you go like you see the results like, just get this dude on the field because once the ball is in his hands, 
it's it's almost similar to like a an Ayuk thing where it's like okay second and twenty five but he got the other ten yards after the catch like just get the ball in his hands because he's gonna make people miss so I I mean I hope that he's now established and shown what he can do and that they're gonna work more to get him on the field whenever all these guys come back because Shepard was hurt. Uh, Slayton was hurt. Galladay hyperextended his knee. Like whenever all these guys come back, I hope that he still remains not even a focal point of the offense, but at least is just featured because I think he can give them a, a dynamic element that they really just don't have outside of him. Um, three interesting. Number two is again, another note from that game on the other side, uh, Trayvon Diggs getting another interception. And honestly, he could have had even one more on top of that. Very narrowly missed a second interception, which would have put him at seven for the year in the first five weeks. To me, like runaway defensive player of the year front runner right now. I know he gives up a lot of yards, but the amount of turnovers he generates, it's like historic pace right now. Like if he keeps even half this pace up for the rest of the year, He's going to end up with like 12, 13 picks and, and have one of the, the craziest corner seasons that we've had in a long, long time. It's it's uncanny how good his ball skills are, how good his recovery skills are. Like, I know he gambles a lot. He suffers from Marcus Peters syndrome. He's on pace to allow over a thousand yards in coverage this year. I get all that. But the amount of times that he's able to give Dak Prescott in this offense more possessions to work with to run people out of the building cannot be discounted. And I think he's one of the five most valuable DBs in the entire NFL right now. Yeah, the way he's playing, if he can keep that production up and interception production is a very fickle thing uh, within seasons, certainly between seasons, just because a guy got a certain number of picks last year, you can in no way guarantee, even if he's the same guy in the same system, that he's going to get that many next year. Uh, but right now, he is playing out of his damn mind. And I think it's a really important point to bring up that he is giving up a whack load of yards. And the Cowboys do not care like <laughs> they don't they will absolutely settle for a huge amount of yards given up if he averages just under a pick a game because all those extra possessions add up and that pick when you have an offense that's functioning as well as Dak and that offense are functioning is almost like a double win right not only are you giving an explosive play to the defense because that's what an interception was. That's what a what a deep sack is. Those are plays that it is. Uh, obviously, an interception immediately changes possession. A deep sack is very difficult statistically for an offense to overcome and to score a lot of points out of. They will either score less points or none if that play happens during a drive. So we talk about explosive plays on offense driving your point total. Explosive plays on defense drive your ability to win. And then if you go and say, okay, Dak, <laughs> you and CD and, and all the rest of the guys go do something with this, it's almost like a double win. 
right? You're taking away points from the opposing offense, and you're basically you have a pretty good shot with the way that offense is functioning right now that you're handing points to your own team. And when you get those kind of stacks, right, where you stop somebody on the goal line right before halftime, you get the ball on the on the kickoff right after the halftime and score, it turns into like a 14-point swing. Those are the kind of things that really are going to help you win a lot of the close games that we're seeing in the NFL. So Dallas will absolutely put up with a crap ton of yards allowed if he keeps picking off basically a, a ball a game. That's an insane pace. And same thing goes for Anthony Brown, by the way, their other corner, because Brown and Diggs are both in the top five in the NFL in terms of most yards given up for corners. But Diggs leads the league in picks, and Brown is tied for third in the league in picks because he has two of his own. So what do you care more about? Do you care more about yards or do you care about turnovers and points? Like there's a reason why Dallas is absolutely blowing teams out right now. It's because it's like, fine, get whatever yards you want. We're still going to take the ball away from you and then score with it. And you're going to be in a two possession hole. And once you're in a two possession hole against Dallas, you're kind of dead. So (laughs) it's a, it's, it's a very dynamic duo at corner for a lot of very interesting reasons. And I'm I'm glued to my seat whenever the Cowboys defense is on TV right now, which if you told me that last year, I would have thought you were joking. <laughs> but it's a very, very exciting young secondary. Uh, three interesting. Number three is, I, I think, probably the most unheralded pass rusher in the league right now. No pun intended. Uh, that is Harold Landry, who is the only pass rusher in the entire NFL that has at least five pressures in every single game. Miles Garrett, in total, has 30 pressures on the year, tied for second in the league. Harold Landry has 30 pressures on the year, tied for second in the league. You don't hear anything about Harold Landry. He's got a sack a game and six pressures a game, and you hear nothing. But he's been absolutely dominant. I believe this is his fourth season So if he keeps this up all year, he's going to be in line for a huge payday. And uh, I think this is just kind of a manifestation of his talent, because you remember when he was coming out of college, what was the book on him? Extremely bursty, bendy, not a whole lot of play strength, but it it was very much like, uh, you know, he's a a flamethrower off the edge. Like he could just beat people with pure quickness and bend. And if he developed another skill set on top of that to counter with it, he was going to be a problem. Well... Now he has. He's got a wicked inside counter. He can rush with power. He still has the quickness and bend. Uh, he's got that double swipe move, just really down pat. He's He is a problem for every single tackle in the league. And, uh, you know, more power to him for, for finally having that breakout year that I think we always thought and hoped that he could have. It only took four years, but it's finally here. Reminds me a little bit, in his sort of time to develop uh, as like Bud Dupree. Bud Dupree, when Ooh, he came in, one. was a bust. Different kind of player. Bud Dupree's bigger player, more power player um, than Landry ever was. But that was the book on Landry is that he got a great fastball. He doesn't have much else, right? He, his changeup is weak and his curveball is non-existent. Like, that's it. He He's going to he's gonna beat you on the outside with speed and bend. But... 
offensive tackles in the NFL have seen that, right? They've seen all the speediest, bendy guys in the world. And if that's all you've got and they can overset a little bit to the outside, it's not really a problem. And if your comeback counter on the inside is weak and they know they don't have to really worry about it, your fastball, if you're just throwing a fastball, it's easy to hit. And he was for the first few years, but he has continued to develop and round out those skills. And we're seeing the payoff now. So credit, you know, to the organization for being patient and and working with him and not, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater right after he started. And my favorite thing about this is, yeah, you hear nothing about Harold Landry. Like you just not a peep. Nobody's talking about Harold Landry. Everybody's talking about Miles Garrett. It's the same with us. We've been talking about Miles Garrett all year. Harold Landry quietly just taking care of business at the exact same level nobody's talking about him but you can bet folks that watch film and certainly the folks that are going to end up having to pay him are taking a lot of notice and it's a weird situation for the team because they they wouldn't have dropped people oh you should have done it early Mm, were you really sure that you were going to drop harold landry for decent money last year even he's a good player he's a good player but like it's no rush to extend him now he gets to what is essentially a contract year and lights it up. And you're like, well, ah, we get what we, <laughs> we get the monster we built and we're going to have to pay for that too. So um, all credit to him. He's a fun player coming out and it is, he is one of those guys that you hoped could add something else because man, that outside the speed and the bend was something else. So it's very cool to, to see. To put it in perspective, he's on pace to pass his pressure total from last year by week nine. Like that's yeah. that's no, how much of a is, jump we're talking about. It reminds me of the last guy we talked about and Trayvon Diggs. Like Trayvon Diggs was not a good player last year. He had a he had a rough senior year and a lot of people said, Hey, he might be a better pro than he was collegiate. You hear that a lot. He's got a lot of skills. He showed flashes. Those are all things, right? And and you have to land. Your landing spot is super important. You have to land in a good spot. You have to continue to work and you have to put it all together. And if you'd told any of us last year Trayvon Diggs is going to be kind of the runaway favorite in the first month for defensive player of the year. You would have been like, like that Trayvon Diggs? Like, I don't (laughs) think so. And if same thing, if you'd said middle last year, like Harold Landry is basically going to lead the NFL in pressures through the first five or six weeks, you would have been like, is everybody else hurt? Like, what do you mean? (laughs) And you see guys take these jumps. You usually see it between the first year and the second year. People call it the sophomore jump or the second year jump, right? Harold Landry did it going into year four. <laughs> Trayvon Diggs did it in his sophomore year, right? Wasn't wasn't tremendous his first year, had a lot of struggles. Different defense, different defensive coordinator, different coaches, right? Comes in, they find what he does, they put him in the good positions, boom, he explodes. Harold Landry's been much more steady and it took longer, and now that he's hit that threshold, boy. And that's the same thing. Bud Dupree, first year and a half, two years, people were saying bust when he was in Pittsburgh, like they're just like, nah, this, he's not and not and not. And all of a sudden, same thing. Year three, year four, he's a force, right? He's, he's a viable part of that rotation in Pittsburgh. So really cool to see it develop that way. All right, EJ, it's time. It's time. My, my favorite part of the week, the bootleg shot of the week. Uh, unsurprisingly last week's winner, Hunter Renfro making one of the greatest special teams plays you're ever going to see. Counting as the return man, realizing they were 
only having 10 on the field, and there was an uncovered gunner kind of floated down at the last second uh, just in case they had some sort of auto check on for a pass, which of course they did, and just had a, a beautiful T-step and stick on the receiver uh, to, I mean, he honestly looked like a DB. Like, if you told me he was an all-pro safety, I would, I would believe you. Just a tremendous tackle, great heads-up football play, uh, one of the best you're going to see all year. So, Hunter Renfro, you ran away with it in the votes. Cheers to you. I got my Casaduras Reposado. And uh, uh, I got go uh, nice. I went with Ellington Reserve, which is a Canadian blend whiskey because, hey, it's NHL open, opening night. You got to go with something Canadian. Oh, I should have thought of that. I have my Pendleton like literally right over there. Oh, well, there you uh, go. Casadores is still good enough for me. So cheers to you, Hunter. Great damn play. Great play. Oh, yeah. That never gets old, man. Those Canadians, man, they do several things well. Hockey's one of them. Blended whiskey. Also one of them. <laughs> uh, this week's nominees, we have a very eclectic group on both sides of the ball. Number one, Tack McKinley, a name that we have not said on this show in a, in a long time. In a bit, yep. In a long, long time. Getting under the pads of Storm Norton, also my submission for all name team in the NFL. Uh, one of the best names for an offensive lineman you're ever going to see. Uh, got under Storm Norton's pads, just completely annihilated him in the bull rush and put a wicked hit on Justin Herbert. Textbook, textbook bull rush. Nice to see him having a little bit of success there. Uh, nominee number two is the second chip that we've seen on a Bosa brother this season. Uh, Nick Chubb this time on Joey Bosa, also in that same game, uh, just del- delivering a vicious shot to his ribs on the chip. Uh, and I, I think probably the running back coach there for the Browns probably appreciated that one because pass protection is not passive, as we've learned this year. James Daniels is our nominee number three, and there was a little bit of a backstory to this one where Denzel Perryman, uh, you know, James Daniels kind of cut him in space earlier in the game, and so when he saw James Daniels, this was Denzel Perryman, when he saw Daniels coming at him again, he decided to jump because he thought he was going to get cut again. And so James Daniels just grabbed him and said, not you're coming with me, and just pile-drived him into the ground. I mean, probably one of the only offensive lineman nominees that we've had this year for Shot of the Week, but by God, did it qualify. And then number four, textbook tackle from Chidobia Wuzier in that Cincinnati and Green Bay game. This is kind of a well-known Rodgers play where pretty much any time he's in bunch, and he does the count, and he sees three versus two. They like to throw that little screen out there. Uh, and Ouzier, he's played against Rodgers a lot, and he knew that was coming. And so he literally just split the split the blockers and made a form tackle on Lazard, dropped it for a loss. Gorgeous, gorgeous tackle. Great heads-up play from somebody who knows Aaron Rodgers well at this point. Um, really couldn't do it any better than that. So hell of a list of nominees this week. Yeah, that was... That last one from Wuzia was the was the first play I saw when I came back from breakfast. And just super compact play. The entire distance of the play is probably three and a half yards from start to finish. Uh, tap the blocker side. Nope, I know what you're doing. Came in, lowered his shoulder, <laughs> hit Lazard right in the hips, just folds him in half and plants him on his back. Because, again, he knew what was coming. Super quick trigger. Great tackle. Uh, the James Daniels thing was, uh, I watched that a lot, 
Um, it wasn't just because I was a Bears fan. I was actually trying to figure out what in the hell happened because the first part I saw was just Perryman kind of flailing, going over backwards on the second level. And I thought, what was that all about? And then you see that he jumped. Then we got the backstory. Um, and boy, James Daniels didn't hold back. James Daniels, uh, great wrestling background, was a very successful wrestler. Not surprising for an Iowa offensive lineman. Just grabbed him around the thigh pads and slapped him down. People called it a spine buster. Um, not a flagged hit. Legal. Uh, just a PSA for why you don't jump in front of offensive linemen because they will take <laughs> they will take full slab. They will hit you in the ribs. They will do that if you're unlucky enough. Um, yeah, the Bosa chips. That's getting to be a thing, right? They need like those little bike mirrors on their helmets like who's a, who's at my 45 because that guy's going to annihilate me and uh, both of them were unaware the last one was the you talked about was in the san francisco green bay game and oof that was rough and tack mckinley yeah we haven't said his name in a while but he yeah he went not only did he destroy the tackle but good clean shot on herbert too just kept his straight line momentum and uh, didn't pull up, which is a dangerous thing to do given the rules these days, but clean hit, not flagged. Um, definitely impactful. You talk about pressures, you know, Herbert did get the ball off, but, uh, he also took a good shot and Storm Norton's been playing really well this year for the chargers. Um, you know, I'd say average or above and, you know, yeah, he got rolled on this one, but the guys on the other side of the line get paid too. So. Let's look at our, uh, week five watch list or actually week six watch list i should say i'm going to correct that banner before the casadoras hits me too much um these are the three games that we really can't wait to watch this weekend i will be at one of them i'm going to be at cardinals at cleveland i'm flying out on thursday so i'm going to be in cleveland for the weekend and i really really cannot wait to see this game because when i first you know secured tickets for it i didn't think it was going to be a matchup between two inarguably top five offenses, arguably top three offenses in the entire league and two defenses that this week, notwithstanding against the chargers have also played pretty well. So it, this should be a matchup between two just extremely good football teams. And I really can't wait to see it live and in person. We're also going to be watching uh, Packers and bears for the first Packers bears showdown this season Weirdly enough, for the NFC North crown, if you told me a few weeks ago that the Packers and Bears would be playing in week six for the division lead, I would have thought you were crazy, but here we are. Uh, It's also the first matchup between Justin Fields and Aaron Rodgers, which may or may not interest some of you. And then uh, last but not least, we have the Chargers versus the Ravens, the two top MVP candidates, in my opinion, uh, Justin Herbert and Lamar Jackson going at it down in Baltimore should be an incredible game. That's an early game, by the way. That's a, a 1 p.m. Eastern time game. So that's a, a primetime quality matchup that we're going to get to start off on our Sunday. I I really can't wait for this slate. It's going to be amazing. Uh, which ones are you looking for the most? Uh, all three of those, for sure, for reasons we've talked about. Uh Cardinals-Browns, again, if we were kind of, well, we were circling games before the season thinking, hey, which games might we go to or which ones are we really looking forward to? Which ones are we going to talk about? Um, And you never know from year to year. But if you told me, oh, by the way, Cardinals are going to roll into Cleveland undefeated, I would have been like, wait, what, what week is that? Like, no, I don't think so. I think you're wrong about that. Well, that's what it is. So it's going to be a heck of a game and two really exciting quarterbacks in Kyler and Baker. Um, 
you know, trading shots. I'm envious. You're going to be there. I know I had a chance to be there, so I can't be that envious, but um, that one's going to be great. Packers bears, just interesting for the first time in forever, right? Packers have owned the bears in recent history. The fact that they're meeting that, you know, the Bears have made adjustments, that Fields is there, Bill Lazor's call and play is this actually looks like it could be a competitive game. I don't know what the line is. I haven't looked yet uh, what the early line is. But the fact that the winner gets to walk out with the lead in the division, which let's be honest, if you're going to try and get into the playoffs, you know, playing well within your division is the first step. It's suddenly a meaningful game. And that alone makes it interesting. Uh, Chargers Ravens. Yeah. For obvious reasons, we've talked about both those teams already this week. The fact that they're matching up next week is going to be fun. And then I've got a morbid fascination game. It's not really the game we want to watch. It's the game you kind of can't look away from. It's kind of the train wreck game. (laughs) It's the Dolphins Jags, right? Is, is two teams that are underperforming pretty solidly this year. And, and which one's going to underperform more or less, however you want to look at that. Like who's the, who's the winner and is the winner really the winner? Because it's starting to get towards where it's going to influence your draft pick. Um, but I know both teams are going to come out, try and win the game. Teams are not playing for draft pick at this point in the season. Um, Jacksonville, well-heralded struggles, Miami. We talked about them last week on our three down section, not performing at all. Like we expected them to certainly not with the amount of talent that they've assembled in that building. So I'm going to watch that game. It's sort of, you can call it the battle of Florida. You can call it whatever you want, but, um, It'll be, I'm going to keep an eye on that one just to see what really happens, what I think is going to happen versus what actually shows up on grass. For what it's worth, Packers are favored over the Bears at four and a half right now, which is not as much as I expected. I would say that's fair, but I also would say that's would that number would be larger if it was Andy Dalton. Oh, yeah. Like not even close. It would, it would be probably a full touchdown, I would imagine. I would agree. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Uh, before we get out of here, reminder, I am going to be in Cleveland this weekend, so I, I'll be at the game. Hit me up on Twitter. Come say hi. I'm staying like a 10-minute walk from the stadium, so I think I'm going to be over in the Mooney lot for tailgating, which apparently is the place to go for tailgating, so if you're going to be there, let me know. Um, and then I have, well, <laughs> I was going to put out like a quasi-Raiders video this week, which I am now scrambling to re-edit because of recent events so we'll see if that comes out this week but worst case scenario it'll be out next week and then of course i'm working on a film room on the cardinals offense so that should also be out relatively soon after i see them live and in person uh ej what do you got coming got bears over beers we're gonna record that tomorrow night that's the bears packers preview uh don't have a guest lined up for this week but we got plenty to say i've watched the packers uh every game this year so feel like I've got a pretty good handle on where they're at as a team and certainly a good handle on the Bears. So that'll be a fun one. Uh, that'll be up on YouTube and Windy City Gridiron as well. And then just wanted to put a plug in for our first Q&A. We're going to have it later this month for our Patreon our Patreon patrons. And uh, we'll keep you apprised. We'll give you as much notice as possible. We heard you loud and clear when we did our live stream with Eric Alco that we were a little bit late in telling you when that was going to go off, that lots more of you would have come uh, had we given you a little bit more warning. So we, we're heeding that and we'll give you plenty of warning for the first Q&A so that as many patrons as possible can show up if you're interested in that. Run over to Patreon, sign up as one of the mid-level patrons. You'll get an uh, exclusive invite to that. Um, We're really looking forward to it. It's just another chance for us to meet fans, uh, much like Brett's going to do this weekend in Cleveland, just virtually instead. So 
that's uh, that's it. But we're rolling into another slate of games, and I kind of I'm, I'm almost bracing at this point. I'm like, what 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 weirdness is gonna top last weekend's weirdness? Because if you combine college weirdness and pro weirdness from last weekend, it it was the wildest weekend of football I can remember, maybe ever. I can't remember more sort mm. of upsets and close games all packed into the same weekend. There were some stunners on on both the college and pro levels. And look, as a football fan, we're just spoiled at this point. There's no other way to put it. Don't tempt the football gods, EJ. We're getting two of the weirdest teams, Chargers and Ravens, matching up against each other. Some shit's going to go down there, I guarantee it. I hope so. I don't know what. I don't know what, but shit's going down. Uh, So with that, we're going to get out of here. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening, however you happen to be consuming bootleg football at uh, this time of day and or time of night, whatever time zone you may reside in, because we've got like 100-something, 200 countries, you know, watching this show now. Thank you, everybody, for being here. We'll be back next Wednesday with our Week 6 recap and Week 7 preview. Until then, later. Later.